It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week, we have John Barber on the show, managing partner at Cohesive Capital. Cohesive is a private equity co-investment firm that is exclusively focused on making direct investments alongside high-quality sponsors that are leading the transactions. John has been in private equity for over 30 years, so it's safe to say he is quite the expert. Prior to Cohesive, he co-founded City Private Equity, where he managed approximately $13 billion of capital and a team of 50 in New York and London. This interview is a little different to normal as we're discussing the private markets as opposed to the public markets. Private markets still have the same goal of delivering a decent return on capital, and John's decades of experience investing in companies is eye-opening. We dig into what makes a good company, including the importance of a company's moat, what makes a good management team, and how to use incentives to drive value. We also discuss the fundamentals of private equity, such as the stages of investment and how the industry has evolved over the years. Finally, we go into detail on what ingredients make someone a high achiever, including highlights some of John's traits, which he believes have contributed to his ongoing success. Enjoy. Hey, John, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. We have a nice uh, sunny day here in New York, uh, despite the uh, sad events of the hurricane uh, in Florida, which we're thinking about those people, but uh, beautiful day and excited to talk to you, Ed. Yes, yeah, me too. And so you're not affected by that at all then? No, not yet. Uh, it's still down in Florida. It'll come up probably over the weekend and give us some rain and some wind, but you know, nothing damaging. Are they becoming more common in America or is it just you've had a pretty crazy sort of couple of years? Uh, it feels like they're more common, but I haven't seen any statistics that tell me whether yeah. they are or they aren't. This is definitely the season. It's always uh, September when we get these storms coming up uh, through uh, and mostly that, that impact Florida the most, but they have impacted us pretty badly at times here too. And whereabouts do you, um, do, do you grow up in America? I grew up in the New York area. Okay, you grew up, so you li- live and work there. Yep. Awesome. And I thought we could start, uh, obviously you're, you're a specialist in private equity, so a lot of people on the show probably don't know the ins and outs of it as much as, well, definitely not as much as you do, but probably have a fairly basic understanding. Could you describe how private equity works, including like the different stages of investment? Sure. So, you know, to start with the term private equity and things have morphed over time, it used to be the LBO business. Now we're all called the private equity. So two things. One is under private equity, you have early stage venture capital, you have later stage venture capital, you have something that some people call growth equity, uh, which is sort of between the stage where a company is more mature and when it's venture. And then you've got leverage buyouts. Leverage buyouts are companies that usually are bought with leverage and obviously typically have significant cash flow. And even within buyout, uh, there's more and more sort of more value-oriented buyout and more growth-oriented buyout. But to go back, what is private equity? Private equity is something that doesn't have a QCIP uh, and that's not liquid. And almost always, especially in the buyout business, it is a, a private equity firm buying 
uh, generally control of a company, and that company will be private. Sometimes that company has never had any outside capital. It might be called a, you know, a family-owned company or, or an entrepreneurial-owned company. Sometimes it's been owned by a private equity firm before, and sometimes it's a public company that is ripe to go private. And so private equity is just what it's determined. It's, it's not public equities. Uh, and um, it you know, has evolved a lot over the last 40 years. There's always been people buying private companies, owning private companies, but as an institutional asset class, really got started in the 70s, largely with KKR and, and Bill Simon and some others, and has developed into a very large professionally managed institutional asset class with different firms focusing on different industries and different sizes, different geographies, and different stages of the private equity uh, landscape. And what's the key differences between uh, venture capital and, and private equity? Well, again, I would say really the difference between venture capital and buyout, right? Because private equity really encompasses all the stages of, of people owning pieces of private companies. Venture capital is a wide range, right? But basically, venture capital is not profitable companies. There's generally no leverage involved. It can range from putting a million or $2 million in a seed round uh, for two guys in a garage all the way to you know multi-billion dollar companies this day and age. Now, 25 years ago, those companies would have gone public because there wasn't enough money in venture mm-hmm. and companies went public earlier. But in today's world, as you probably know, I mean, I think Uber was still private and was still worth 25 billion uh, as a private company. I would consider even at 25 billion, Uber to still be a venture capital deal. We have a, a view here at Cohesive that something is a growth equity deal when it has real products, real customers, real revenues, et cetera, is likely to be profitable in 18 to 24 months and doesn't need any more money to get there. So that's sort of our breaking point as to where we think venture ends and growth equity starts. So venture capital uh, is that in leveraged buyout. Companies that have generally been around a while have significant revenues, significant cash flow. That cash flow is pretty highly leverageable, meaning that there's leverage involved in, in purchasing it. They can be small companies. They can be as small as 50 million. They can be as big as 20 billion, but they are companies that, uh, at that stage. Yeah. Usually not as exciting. In the past, they were less techy and more industrial. In today's world, they are much more, uh, and we can talk about that, what has evolved in private equity. But you know, in the early days of private equity, they were very boring, rusty manufacturing companies, often undermanaged, et cetera, et cetera. Today, in the LBO slash private equity business, much more service-oriented companies, much less CapEx, much more growth. Uh, much more technology, business services, uh, and things like that. I just saw, for instance, a chart that said that in uh, Blackstone's private uh, BDC, which is a $50 billion private BDC, uh, it's a pretty good benchmark for especially you know, upper middle market to a very large market buyout, that 25% of all their lending was in the software space across that portfolio, which is pretty stunning. That's crazy. And so, I mean, continuing on that, should we, should we discuss... How private equity, how you've seen it change um, over the last 20 years on top of this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's gone from very small and niche and backwater to very large with a lot of scrutiny, a lot of professionalism. There are hundreds and thousands of private equity firms around the world, uh, some as small as 100 million, again, some as, as big as you know, multi, multi 20 billion, 25 billion. As you probably know, also, people, when we talk about private equity and size of funds, People raise a fund, they invest that fund for generally three to four to five years, and then all the deals in that fund liquidate, give the money back to their investors, and they've raised another fund after four years and continue. So the private equity business almost entirely is a business of raising 
capital in a discrete fund, that fund lasting for 10 to 12 years, but invested over four to five, three to five, and then harvested over another four, five, six, seven years. Yeah. The big changes, there are firms that, as I sort of said before, very boring, very rusty, more manufacturing type companies today, much less manufacturing, much more service, a lot of software, a lot of healthcare, a lot of business services, even you know more consumer and things like that. A lot more free cash flow tend to be companies that grow a good bit more, and some of them grow a lot more. Prices are significantly higher on the EBITDA basis. If you looked at measure them at what kind of growth rate they have today versus growth rates in the past, if you look at how much EBITDA minus CapEx, which is a much better measure for when you think about buying a company, you know, because, you know, CapEx is, you know, is a big drag on, on your cash flows, uh, still probably higher multiples than in the past, but not as much higher as people think. Firms can be more specialized, only doing technology, only doing consumer, only doing financial services, only doing business services. Uh, and certainly even at the biggest firms, there are definitely silos uh, where people, the private equity firms, the deal professionals are, are more expert in their sectors. And then the other big thing that's happened over time is is bringing more expertise into the private equity firms to both find deals, diligence deals, and most importantly, make companies better when we own them. And that takes two paths. Uh, one path is what I'll call operating partners. And those operating partners are people sometimes who are in their 40s or 50s, but often in their 60s or 70s. I sometimes joke that people don't retire to golf, they retire to private equity. So if you're a really senior executive at all kinds of different companies, it's very clear that now you want to go help a private equity firm buy a company, run a company, be on a board, et cetera. And a lot of people do that and are very, very helpful at knowing that industry you know, even more intimately and the operations even more intimately than the deal guys at a private equity firm. The other thing some private equity firms that have done is very smart is, is gotten what I call uh, operations expertise. So they might have an HR person on staff to help the HR people at the company, uh, a supply chain expert, a sourcing expert, a lean manufacturing expert you know, uh, a marketing expert and have people like that on their teams to help uh, the portfolio companies get better. Uh, one of the things that always drives me crazy is there's still this uh, residue, I'll call it, in the press and other places that private equity firms come in and slash and burn and cut people and this and that and, you know, make money by shrinking. Private equity firms do not make money by shrinking companies. They make money by growing companies. And the whole goal is to improve the company, grow the top line, grow the margin. Sometimes that takes layoffs and, and things like that. Sometimes it takes eliminating certain product lines. It's amazing. Sometimes we see companies where companies are making products or doing services where they don't make money. They just don't know they're not making money. So you have to eliminate some parts of the business, but grow other parts of the business. So I'm a big believer that private equity is a jobs creator, uh, is a wealth creator, and uh, across uh, all the economies. Um, and, you know, we can talk a little bit about it, but that it's a great way to invest money in the equity world uh, versus the pu public equity world. And why do you think um, uh, that there's, you know, because I've heard of this before, this, this sort of reputation that, you know, public equity companies coming in and then, you know, they're, they're just cutting costs and, you know, it would involve getting rid of human resource or uh, product lines and stuff. Why do you think it's more focused on that area rather than the growth? I think there are two reasons. One, in the past. Uh, that was more true, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and yeah. it's often it's hard to shed an image. Two, uh, not to be too cynical, but I think the press and others, you know, tends, it's not a good story to talk about how yeah, good yeah. private equity is doing and what it's doing for the companies and the community and things like that. It's better to talk about what they're doing wrong. So, and, and listen, 
you know, there's a, there's a saying that I always remember, you know, a, a couple bad apples or one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? Yeah. And there are times when uh, maybe people do things they shouldn't do or certain companies uh, have problems. They also focus on things, you know, people love to like talk about retailers that were LBO'd and are no longer in business were liquidated. Well, generally those were retailers who probably were doing pretty badly at the time that somebody bought them because they were able to be bought. And two, there aren't any retailers that have done especially well. Yeah. And, you know, so if, if you look uh, at some of those disasters, you know, those were secular things that, you know, may have been accelerated when you bought a company and owned it with leverage or, you know, companies go bankrupt. People don't understand that going bankrupt may just mean you have the wrong capital structure. It doesn't mean anything was bad with the company. Yeah. And yes, maybe retailers shouldn't have been LBO, shouldn't have had all that leverage, but you know, that happens. So it's not, you know, an LBO or a private equity firm's fault that retailing is a difficult industry and that they bought and made a mistake and put too much leverage on it. And then it maybe went bankrupt and there was some, some damage from that. So there, you know, there's always things that happen that don't go the way you'd like them to go in life. Nobody ever points out the small to medium sized businesses that maybe go bankrupt because they're not managed well. Uh, it might've been managed better by a private equity firm. Yep. I referenced the element of of private equity versus public equity, and um, you know I, I think it's a it's an important foundation to have, which is what you know why do we believe that private equity is a better way to take equity risk and make better returns? And you know again, I won't get into it in detail, but there's you know you can measure it many 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 different ways, but I think over long periods of time it's pretty clear that private equity has outperformed public equity. Yeah, but a lot of people say, oh, that's because it's illiquid, or because it's this, or because it's that, and the answer is. Private equity is illiquid, and illiquidity gives you, I think, an advantage. But that's not why, in my opinion, private equity outperforms public equity. We have uh, what we call the four beneficial qualities of private equity. The first is most important in many ways is, is our investment process. In today's world, we go in, we have full insight to the company, whether it's public or it's private already, and get every you know total uh, insider information, total diligence total viewpoint of that company. Uh, we get to meet the management teams, we get to see the factories, we get to see the stores, we get to see their facilities, we get to meet the people, we get to understand their past performance, we get to understand hopefully their future performance, think about strategy. All those are things that you can't do in the public markets these days. Reg FD has changed the public market equity investing to be much more difficult. Many of those things that I just talked about, maybe back in the 1980s and 70s, a Peter Lynch of Magellan fund, a legendary investor at Fidelity, uh, would have gone and learned a bunch of those things, but that's really not possible today uh, in the public equity markets. So all information is more uniform. So, so the investment process and the amount of time we get and the kind of transparency we get and the opportunity to diligence and bring in consultants and stuff is a very positive driver. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is, is that we have control over our investments. And you know, if you look at a private equity company, typically the board is relatively small. It's almost always some of the management team uh, people from the private equity firm, and every once in a while, a couple of people who are expert from outside the private equity firm that they've brought in to be a sounding board. But having control of well, how do we think we should run the company, what acquisitions we should make, what divestors should we make, what people in the management team should stay, which ones should go, who should be added, who should be upgraded. Those are all decisions that you can do and, and affect and make when you have control. Yeah. As a public equity investor, you have no control. And it's interesting, you know, as, as activism has turned up more and more in the public equity markets, a lot of that is that you know they think the boards are stale, the boards are too big, the boards are distracted, or that the CEO has just loaded the board with you know people who agree with him. So I think that's a second important thing, which is you know control and activism, so to speak, yeah. on our board because we are in charge and we put the money in. Yeah. The third thing is that we think about buying companies and owning them for five years. 
so we can make plans and make decisions over that five-year time frame. And I think that's very positive. I think one of the negatives in the world is everybody has too much short-termism. Mm-hmm. And that's very true in the public equity markets. And you know, quarterly results and stocks move tremendously about quarterly results, uh, good and bad. And thus, you know, a little bit like Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson and a good few good men where, you know, uh, he says, I want the truth. And you says, and the other guy says, you can't handle the truth. You know, the public equity markets, you know, demand short-term results. And so the management teams try and work for short-term results. And sometimes that's not the best thing for long-term value creation. So mm-hmm. the, the third element of saying, hey, we may do some things in year one or two that may not be maximizing profits this year certainly not worrying about quarters, but that's going to give us a better end result at the end of four or five years when we want to go sell this company, I think is a very positive uh, element of private equity uh, investing. So that's the third beneficial quality of private equity. And then the fourth one is, uh, I really think being aligned with management teams and, and having people inside companies think like owners. So, you know, as you, as you probably know, you know, most times there's a pretty significant 10 to 15% option pool for the management teams of private equity owned companies. And two things that allows you know a significant incentive. Very often, I think it's pushed wider and deeper in the management teams than it is at public companies, where it's just typically the named officers. Mm-hmm. And so, getting more people, and that's even extending further. You may be familiar and should look into this. There's an organization called Ownership Works, started by Pete Stavros at uh, KKR, which is encouraging even broader and wider and having all employees in a company to have some form of equity or equity result when when a successful exit is made. So doing that. And then, but most importantly is that management team is fully aligned with you. They don't have, you know, options in a public company and just keep working to get those vested and exercise them and get out. You know, you may be an equity investor and, you know, the management team is actually selling while you're buying. Whereas in our deals, the management team never sells until we sell. And they know that they need to have a good end result at the end of five years. They can't do something in the short to medium term that's dumb that may help value in the short term and and make them wealthier that doesn't work so again you know really good investment process total control over the company and the board and how things work you know thirdly thinking for the long term and lastly very very good alignment with a deep and wide sector of the people who help make the company successful every day and that's the management team and you know i've learned a lot over the 40 years i've been in business and over the 20 something years i've been doing private equity and one of the things is clear as day is management teams matter execution matters, leadership matters. Those are really, really key elements of successful companies. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And just touching on this um, incentives part, this is something that is very interesting. The behavior you get out of Construction them in certain ways. How in- essential are those and construction in the right way to getting a good outcome? Well, I was taught something once by one of the operating partners at Clayton Dubolier and Rice, a firm I respect a lot, a guy named George Tamke. He'd been the ex-CEO of Emerson Electric, very successful guy. We were doing a buyout of ServiceMaster and we were talking about some elements of what we were going to do going forward. And he looked at me real simply and said, John, good incentives, good behavior, bad incentives, bad behavior. <laughs> I think I say that to myself once a week. It's true at our firm. It's true with our companies. It's true with our private equity partners. It's true in life. And the example here was we paid people a lot to get new customers to fertilize their lawns. And we paid people nothing to stop customers from leaving. So churn was very high. 
Well, it's much cheaper to keep a customer than it is to get a new customer. So we put new incentives in place where we incented them to keep our customers happy, keep our customers as customers, and lower churn. Churn went down, I think, about 15% in a year and a half just by putting in good incentives versus bad incentives. So that was a general important lesson. So I do think uh, that when management teams are highly incented and are highly aligned, uh, when they push it down uh, deeper and wider in an organization, when you can get organizations, everyone's thinking like owners. One of the things, you know, I worked at what was Travelers Group for a while, became Citigroup. And one of the things I think Sandy Weil did amazingly was he made everybody who worked there think about what was good for the company every day? What was good for the stock every day? What would Sandy do? Uh, now that's leadership on one hand, but it's also aligning and incenting people correctly. And you said that's important that these incentives are sort of long term, as in like they're not they're not beneficial for short term. Although some of these are short term, I suppose if you stop and churn, etc. For the management team higher up, it's better that you you put in multi year. Yeah, for the management team and the broad people, they're incented by what's the end result in five years. Obviously, some incentives are, you know, to bonus plans or uh, incentive plans to make the management think, have good actions on a daily, weekly, yeah. monthly, but really yearly basis. Very interesting. I thought we could just loop back around now to a bit in your background. You've obviously been in private equity and, uh, and finance for you know, a lot of your life. And if we could touch on that in your career, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I uh, grew up in a family that was more academic than business. Uh, my mom and dad were both PhDs. My father was a professor of sociology. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, the black sheep. I always liked a little bit more commerce and doing things and, and stuff. I was an auto mechanic as a kid and, and started a couple little businesses when I was in, in college, but always was interested in business and got lucky and landed right out of college at, at Drexel Burnham, which was obviously in 1983, a pretty interesting place to start. Worked there in what was then called the syndicate department, the group that did all new bond equity offerings, learned a lot about a lot of different companies, learned a lot about capital structures, especially Drexel, met a lot of interesting people. Unfortunately, we obviously went out of business in uh, early 1990. I uh, went to Kidder Peabody, got the opportunity to run equity capital markets as a pretty young guy, got to sit on the firm's commitment committee. Again, got to learn a lot about a lot of companies, learned how to you know work in a firm and make sales and trading and research and banking. We were sort of at the epicenter of that, all worked together to a common goal. Uh, that was great. Uh, went to, to Smith Barney, which became Solomon Smith Barney, which became Citigroup. And at some point, you know, I'd been doing it quite a while because uh, I'd started pretty young, probably 18, 19 years, and decided that I thought I'd like a change. You know, despite the fact that I'd been in public equities my whole life and been on an equity trading for my whole life, I knew one thing, which was I was not good at public equity. And thus, uh, as I always like to joke, John Barber is in private equity because he sucks at public equity. I don't like the, the hourly, daily movements of prices. I don't like the fact that you may be able to get the right answer as to what's going to happen to a company, but you got you know, what other people thought about the valuation wrong. I, I like being able to, the elements of a private equity market and, and how you have to think through that. And so I uh, had an idea, which was that we should have a plan for the employees of Citigroup to invest in private equity. We didn't have that in 2000. I went to the senior management of Citigroup and they let me start a program to let a broad swath, and I'm talking about broad, like 2,500 employees, invest in two different funds. One was to invest in private equity funds and the other was to invest in a fund that really became a co-investment fund. And that's where I learned about co-investment and sort of realized that you know there were private equity firms all over. They often did deals that were too big for them. And they needed partners to come in and help them fill the hole when a deal was too big for them. And very frankly, at that time, there wasn't that much help 
out there because you know the pension funds and others, the LPs were pretty understaffed and hadn't done much co-investing. The firms that were more the fund of funds firms hadn't really built out any ability to do direct deals. And we at City really built a business to service uh, and work with private equity firms to co-invest in their deals. And we started doing that in 01 and invested a good amount of money. And then we thought it was successful enough. We then raised a really large $3.3 billion co-investment fund in 2006 to show how large that was actually at the time. It was the largest co-mingled co-investment fund until HarborVest topped that last year. And uh, uh, we invested that money, made a bit of a mistake, which we put a lot of that money, about 80% of it to work in 06 and 07, which was a learning lesson about, you know, I believe that private equity is an asset class or one of the benefits also is what I call dollar cost averaging, meaning you're putting money out over time across different cycles. Mm. Um, and so we believe at Cohesive to generally invest over four years in the fund at uh, City, we invested over two years and, and think that was a mistake. You know, so that was really my introduction to being a private equity investor and building private equity investment teams. Um, the things I learned there that was, you know, uh, two things. One, I believe private equity is very much a team sport. Some people ask me, you know, how'd you name the firm cohesive and why is it an adjective? And I really believe that private equity is a team sport. Everybody is important. Everybody's voice should be heard. Uh, there should be a lot of collaboration and iterative decision making. And cohesive teams win. Uh, and I think that's very, very clear. So we named the firm Cohesive Capital for that reason. We also wanted to be cohesive and partner-like with our lead private equity firms. Again, I guess we should have mentioned this. Co-investing means we go into deals directly alongside another private equity firm where the deal is generally too big for them. We don't have governance. We have full rights. We come in at the same terms, same price, same economics. And sometimes we own as little as 1% or 2% of the company. Sometimes we own as much as 40% of the company. Sometimes we're on the board, sometimes we're not on the board, but we are picking a partner. That partner has found the deal, diligence the deal. We sometimes diligence it with them early. Sometimes we diligence a little later, but we do a whole second level of diligence uh, with them. And so co-investing is, again, investing you know, in a wide swath of private equity deals uh, with uh, lead partners who have found those deals, started the diligence, and then oversee the companies from the time you buy it to the time you sell it. Mm -hmm. And um Whilst at, at City, uh, is, are there any lessons that stand out that you learned over that period? Listen, I think you're always learning. And if you don't keep learning, you know, that's a bad thing and you're going to make mistakes. So I think one of the beautiful things about life is sort of lifelong learning. And so I learned a lot. You know, at the early stages, I think was learning that co-investment was a good business, that being able to be diversified across sectors, across styles, across firms, across time uh, in a very efficient way was a good thing. I think we learned how to interface with private equity firms and make sure that we were very responsive, to make sure that we provided transparency, to make sure that we provided often quick no's. People are notorious for not giving quick no's, and I think private equity firms appreciate that, and for making sure we never left anybody at the altar. That's the cardinal sin in our business, to go along, go along, everybody thinks you're going to be in, and then you're not in. Um, so those were important. As it relates to investing lessons, you know, I think you know, key things were Niche businesses with nice moats, uh, free cash flow is a wonderful thing. You know, some ability to grow the business organically as well as potentially by acquisition is obviously a, a good thing. Management matters. Purchase price matters. I'm sort of stealing that, frankly, from Mark Rowan at Apollo. They uh, preach purchase price matters all the time at Apollo and stick by it. And uh, you know, really thinking about. Is this the right private equity firm to do this deal? Do they have the knowledge base of the industry? 
Uh, is it the style you know, uh, of the kind of company, what has to be done that they're used to doing? And also how built out is the management team or not built out is the management team? You know, There's risks and rewards in every deal. Sometimes you're coming into a company that has never had private equity money in it before, no institutional capital, and that management team may need more help and more uh, rebuilding. But that's an opportunity as well, because you know sometimes when you can do things for the first time in a company, first institutional capital, there's a lot better ways to improve the company. But you know, lower risk is maybe you're buying the company for the second or the third time that a private equity firm has owned it, but still have opportunities. And you know, there's always a little bit of criticism of second buyouts, third buyouts, fourth buyouts. We've been involved in many deals that are second, third, fourth buyouts, and there's always things to get, still get better. There's always things to still improve. There's always things that the new firm can bring to the party to make it better. So I think if one did a study, which has never really been done, to look at second-time buyouts, third-time buyouts, fourth-time buyouts, they're very successful. And I think they're a little bit lower risk, maybe a little lower reward, but that is another thought. But you know, we learn every day you know, what you got wrong and, and try and apply it to the next deal uh, that you look at. Is there an investment in your days of City that stands out as one of your best and why? Well, alternatively, one of your worst? You know, listen, there's a lot of quite good deals and, and they're more than I'd like of, of bad deals. You know, one deal that stands out was actually a take private of Dollar General with KKR. Yeah. Uh, I think it was in 2007. You know, it was a, a, a public company that was not well managed. Dollar stores were and have always been and will be a good concept. And taking it private and being able to do things to the company to make it better uh, were dramatic. Then it went public again and has been a super successful public company and has been really the leader in the dollar store field. And a lot has evolved there. So that was, you know, that was, a, I think, a four and a half bagger. Wonderful company, wonderful uh, things. Didn't hurt that we went into a bit of a recession as we owned it, um, which makes people step down to dollar stores a bit more. Again, dollar stores doesn't mean everything's a dollar. Um, but really nice company, really great, great, great management team. The leader was phenomenal. You know, in terms of our worst, there were plenty. Uh, I'd probably say Caesars, not because it was a bad company, but because we misread something, which was, I think we, you know, if you'd looked at Vegas over a long period of time, it had always grown. It had grown through recessions. And the answer is sometimes secular growth outweighs uh, cyclical challenges. And since so much was happening in Vegas and we, you know, new hotels, new casinos, new formats, growth, growth, growth. It wasn't as obvious when 2008, 2009 came was much more impactful on Caesars and on gaming and on gaming in Vegas specifically than I think we expected. And with a deal like that, with as much leverage as it had and various challenges. And so that was, you know, the, the reason I sort of think of that as one of our less good ones, especially both the outcome, but also was that I think we, we made a mistake because we misthought about what would happen to the company in the environment that very well might come. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we've never had probably as bad a, a time as 08 and 09 in this country in a long, long time economically. So that was, you know, pressure tested even more. And Apollo did a great job of, of trying to, uh, to navigate uh, those tough waters. But at the end of the day, it wasn't, uh, wasn't enough. So that would probably be one of our worst deals. And just coming back to you and yourself and what traits do you think that have made you a successful investor over the years? Well, I think two things. One is, I think, this idea that it's a team sport and that making sure that you build a team and that team uh, has you know, different elements to it in terms of how they think and that you value what everyone says and you listen and you have a good iterative and highly communicative process. We sometimes joke here that we argue even when we agree. 
And that's not a bad thing. And maybe that the younger people have see things from a certain angle and the older people see things from a certain angle and people from here are people from there. And that also goes along with, you know, from my standpoint, making sure you have really good, smart people and you're hiring people that are smarter than you to work with you. So I think it starts with the team and the process that you have the team use to make due diligence and make investment decisions. You know, I think the other thing is making sure that uh, you're patient. Patience is one of the hardest things that most people have to, you know, practice, so to speak. Uh, some people are better, but you know, one of the things I always laugh is almost everybody will come to you. Hey, how you doing? You busy? Like as if busy is good. Busy is not necessarily good. Good is good. Busy is not good. You know, I also joke everybody thinks bigger is good, right? Bigger is not good. Better is better. Bigger isn't better. You know, sometimes it is. So uh, I think you know, you know, staying within yourself, being patient, you know, keeping your emotions uh, to a certain extent in check. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting that I've seen recently was a chart, and the chart is titled "Take a Deep Breath: Investor Sentiment Life Cycle." And it sort of is a chart that has a slowly uptrending line, then a very steep descending line, and then an uptrending line that's similar to the first line, and it starts at reluctance, then it goes to optimism, then it goes to excitement, then it goes to exuberance, then it sort of curves down, it goes to denial, pretty quickly down to fear, to desperation, to panic, to capitulation. It bottoms out, and as you start going up, it gets to despondency, depression, apathy, indifference, and back to reluctance. And one of the things is you can see that and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But when you're living through it, it's very hard to A, know where you are, but B, to not react, to realize that maybe at panic and capitulation or close to that, you really should be a buyer. Certainly at despondency and depression, you should be a buyer or being putting your foot on the gas a little bit more, being a little bit more hopeful. And you know, in private equity, we are not uh, like in public equities where we can sell things and buy things at whim, right? They're, they're sort of timing when we own things. But you can have your foot a little lighter on the gas pedal. You can have your foot a little heavier on the gas pedal. I don't think you ever take it off the gas pedal, but you also can think about what kind of things do I want to buy in this environment and protect yourself. You know, uh, we're about to buy a company that processes, packages, distributes rice. You know, I don't think there's anything that could be better in a recession than rice. Um, yeah. So that's sort of a, a, an example of that. So those are some things you need to think about as one is going through these various periods of, of the marketplace and of people's attitudes and think about that without getting too negative or getting too positive. So I think keeping emotions in check, being patient, uh, trying to listen as well as one can in general to all the different constituencies that one deals with is an important trait as well. And then I guess one thing that I always, uh, you know, it's less impacts our business, but I think it's important for private equity. David Bonder one puts up uh, 10 rules of private equity that I was at a, at a meeting uh, with him. And one of them was, if you think you have a problem with the management team, you do. <laughs> what that really was saying is people are very slow to fire people, very slow to make changes. It's just the one thing people don't like to do. People have a real hard time making changes, firing people, uh, et cetera. And probably doing it faster is better. Sometimes that means letting go the CEO or something, or sometimes it's encouraging the CEO to say, you know, is your chief marketing officer really good? Is your chief financial officer absolutely top notch? You know, you might want to top grade uh, some of these people and push them to do it because they, they'll resist as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, it'd be great to now segue into what makes a good company and we've been touching it already, but it, 
if we take that just from a holistic point of view, are there certain things that stand out to you? Yeah, we mentioned a little bit before, but you know, again, things have changed in private equity. So, you know, there's much more asset light, low capex businesses, services businesses in private equity than there used to be. So, uh, let's start with you know companies that don't have to have a lot of fixed costs, don't have to have a lot of uh, capex. When I say fixed costs, like you know, factories, equipment, etc., don't have to have a lot of of maintenance capex. Growth capex is one thing, but maintenance capex is another. So we love to see a lot of free cash flow. If you think about an LBO, uh, it's really no different than buying a home. We don't get to put eighty percent leverage on our LBOs, but if you buy a home, a lot of people put eighty percent mortgage and twenty percent equity. And you know, at least in the old days, for the most part, every day that you're paying, you know, a mortgage payment, you're paying part interest, but you're paying part of the equity back, and uh, and you're using your earnings to do that. Well, an LBO is very similar, right? Every day that you generate free cash flow you're in effect paying down debt. And as you're paying down debt, you're creating equity value uh, just by paying down debt. So free cash flow is a, is a real important thing. And we very much focus here on what is our multiple of EBITDA minus maintenance capex, as opposed to just what's our multiple of, of EBITDA. Uh, second thing is where does the company live in its ecosystem? Is it a leading company? Does it have good market share? You know, does it have a defensible position? A lot of people uh, use the word moat. Uh, Porter's five forces type things, right? Is it a defensible company or is it really easy to compete with it? Does it have no defensible elements to it? You know, it's not always a patent for a product or it's not always a brand, et cetera, that makes a company defensible. Sometimes it's just a really good market position in an area that other people don't do with long-term customer relationships and really high execution that makes very satisfied customers. And we, you know, we see that often. So we're focusing on, you know, what's the company's moats? What's the company's market position? How big is the market that the company operates in? In some ways, you want as big a addressable market as you can. But sometimes a company that you know has a nice thirty-five percent market position in a limited thing, but can get that to thirty-five to forty-five to fifty-five, and that market is not shrinking, uh, is a very interesting opportunity as well. You know, in in terms of management teams, you know, we want to see you know high quality management teams or the ability to build one and to know what we have to do. A lot of times we buy companies that are going to need improvement to the management teams, uh, but you don't want to think you have a good CFO or a good this or a good that, and then turns out you don't. That means you're getting a late start to it. Mm. How, how do you determine if these guys are good or not? Well, again, that's really the job of our lead partner. But I think overall, when we're meeting with the management teams and discussing and, and things like that, you know, you get a pretty clear view of when you ask questions about the business. How do they answer those questions? How do they think about the business? How do they go about making things better? You know, what have they done in the past? You know, I mean, no different than, so to speak, interviewing somebody for a job where, yeah. you know, they may have the job we're interviewing for to keep the job, et cetera. And think about, you know, what, what's their experience level? Uh, what's their way of approaching uh, problems? What's their approach to, to motivating people and building teams? All those kind of things are, are things we think about, you know, in, in terms of what uh, creates a high achiever. But, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, you, you want to see someone who has a, a reasonable smarts level, although I have a, general saying, which is brains are overrated. You want to see somebody with really good EQ who really understands people and can deal with clients and can deal with team members, uh, can deal with customers, can deal with all kinds of, of people. You want people who work hard. Uh, working hard is a key asset. It is almost a, a given as table stakes, but just repeat it. Uh, you know, you want to see someone uh, who has ambition, uh, but not, you know, ambition that's blinding. And you want people who are not scared of 
having people around them who will tell them no or will give them advice. The worst kind of people are people who just put yes men around them. So that's not a good thing either. Yeah. And can we dig into that point on uh, you think brains are overrated? That's quite interesting. You know, listen, everybody loves to say, oh, that guy's really smart and stuff like that. And at least in my experience and as someone who's not that smart, you know, my sense is, you know, you want people who know how to make things happen, who can get things done, who can communicate a message, who can build a team, who can lead a team. And there's saying, you know, there are three things. They often people talk about IQ, EQ. Uh, I heard a very interesting one also called DQ. And DQ is for decency quotient. You know, you desperately don't want to have your business blown up. You know, decency quotient is are people telling the truth? Are people being transparent? Uh, do people always think about doing the right thing? You want people with a high DQ. Because some people say, oh, well, DQ is just a part of EQ. I know some people have amazing interpersonal skills, but may not have the greatest DQ. So IQ, yeah. EQ, DQ, I value EQ and DQ because I think they're more the deciders of who's successful versus who's not successful. At IQ, you know, you need someone who has the right IQ for what you want them to do, uh, so to speak, and enough brains that makes them you know, comprehend things and process things and be able to understand things. But very frankly, and maybe this comes from having two parents who are PhDs, some of the smartest people in the world are not people who necessarily can make things happen or want to make things happen. Uh, they like studying. They like being behind a screen. They like analyzing. And they can overanalyze in some cases. And also, some of them just don't have the people skills that necessary to transmit the message and the leadership that one needs to make for success. Yeah, that's very interesting. And do you believe in uh, the idea that founder-led companies are run better than non-founder-led? Um, I think there's some great founders, but frankly, there are times when some founders are good at taking a company from zero, and not just in venture, but even in, in regular basic companies. They're good at taking companies from zero to 10 million of EBITDA, but not maybe the right people to take it from 10 million to 40 million. There's a different skill set in terms of starting something entrepreneurial, bootstrapped sort of type of organization. But as things get bigger and broader, and there's maybe more analysis needed, sometimes that person isn't the right person. So sometimes founders, whether it be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or you know uh, whatever, Sam Walton, you know, are the exact right person to go from zero all the way through, right? And in some cases, they're not, and that's uh, true from more techie startupy companies uh, to very basic companies. And sometimes we find that there's a great first generation, but the second generation that's in there isn't as, isn't as good. And they're only there because they were second generation. So you need to think about that and deal with that. So, but a really great founder is an amazing thing, you know, so I don't think it's a bad thing, um, but I don't think it's always uh, the answer. And do you have an opinion on what good company culture is? Is it something you look at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think culture is is absolutely crucial. Uh, I think it comes back to some of the comments I made before, whether it be about how I think about running a private equity firm or how we judge people who run companies. But uh, companies with bad cultures are a big problem, right? And so first is, I think, communication. Two is, I think, inclusiveness. Three, you know, these are not in any order, you know, our diversity. And again, putting those all together, having teams making the team work together, having the team be cohesive, having the team be transparent, having the team lead, not manage, so to speak. And so, you know, a culture where people at the bottom of the organization feel that if they make a, a suggestion or a comment, that'll get listened to. You know, very often we hear in some of our companies, some of the best suggestions or fixes to things come, you know, from a lower level 
a person who really sees it from a different perspective than the, than the senior management team. And so making sure that you have a way for those ideas to bubble up and celebrate them, you know, as well is important. So culture is important. And I think, you know, continually, quote unquote, nurturing culture is important and letting people, you know, I think there's some things like mission statements that can help, but you got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Yeah. So you can yeah. put a thing up, you know, on the front door where you walk in with the mission statement. But if everybody walks by it and sort of smirks and laughs like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a joke. That's no good, right? That's, that's a bad culture. When everybody sees that and, and, and like laughs, boy, I wish that were true. And you don't need to have it up on the wall if you do it every day, very frankly. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been, it's been great. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation. There's so many insights here that I'm sure people will be really interested in. Well, thanks so much, Ed. I really appreciate you, uh, really appreciate you having me on and uh, enjoyed the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.